Collateral. The unknown, the unexplored, the weird, the beautiful, the different. Arts and popular culture. Physical science. Philosophy and history. Society and education. Drift bottles and rubber ducks. Hang on, what? <laughs> An underwater microphone. A mega tsunami of Martian dimensions would have unimaginably disastrous consequences. It's collateral. Ah, oh, okay. Our new podcast, Collateral, from Lateral Magazine. Welcome to Collateral. I'm your host, Elise. This podcast explores the intersection between science and society. Each episode follows the same theme as the publication that gave birth to the podcast, Lateral Magazine. So the theme for this episode is maps. Over 400 years ago, the first modern atlas, known as the Theatre of the World, was created and published by Abraham Ortelius. Ortelius's map, created in 1527, recorded the first evidence of continental drift and also helped to communicate the shape of the world. But of course, Indigenous people all around the world had already mapped the environment. Indigenous Australians were guided by stars and song lines, ancestral tracks that existed thousands of years before any atlas. This episode explores all that, plus the value of mapping brains, and technology that maps genes so we can edit them. But first, it's time to explore a world of maps we continually navigate, but perhaps rarely give thought to. Producer Reese McGowan brings us a story about our four-legged friends who use their keen sense of smell to chart the ever-changing terrain of neighbourhood scents. I have a dog whose name is Yoshi. We're best buds and we communicate using a rich vocabulary of gestures and body language, along with about 40 or 50 English words, most of which seem to relate to food. Yoshi's a food guy. He's also a schnoodle. That's a schnauzer cross poodle, in case you were wondering. And he's got a short ringlety coat and a big beard. I call him my caramel prince. But I also call him a pea cartographer. Because when we go out walking, he seems to exist in a completely different world to the one I occupy. While I'm looking at trees and birds and colour and movement, Yoshi's sniffing telegraph poles and shrubs and bins, trying to chart the signatures left by other dogs who've passed before us. And of course, once he's satisfied that he's accurately updated his map of the neighbourhood odours, he then adds his own signature to the guest book for the next intrepid cartographer to inspect, document and sign off on, as it were. This routine will be familiar to any dog owner, and most of us probably think it's pretty unremarkable. After all, everyone knows that dogs have a sense of smell vastly superior to our own, so while we homo sapiens have evolved to favour our sense of vision, our doggy companions experience the world primarily through their superhuman olfactory apparatus. But just how sensitive are dogs' noses really? I've heard they're a thousand times more sensitive, tens of thousands, even a million. But if that's true, then why are there so many false positives by drug detection dogs? And as my dear friend Joe Barrett once remarked on the topic, if dogs really do have such a keen sense of smell, then why do they need to put their nose right up against another dog's butthole just to get a whiff? Could it be that we've been misled? NPR's Nova Science Now blog in the US, the Wall Street Journal in Australia, 
Even New Scientist and National Geographic News are among the many outlets that have published articles claiming that dog's sense of smell is anywhere from 1,000 to 100,000 times superior to that of humans. Where citations are provided, they point to two studies from 2003 and 2006 led by James Walker, the former director of the Sensory Research Institute at Florida State University in the US. The first of those papers, titled Human Odor Detectability, New Methodology Used to Determine Threshold and Variation, and published in 2003 in the journal Chemical Senses, studied the sensitivity of 12 people to the odor of N-amyl acetate, or NAA, a chemical which smells like bananas and is often used in studies of odor sensitivity. The study used these observations to estimate the human threshold sensitivity to NAA. Three years later, in 2006, Walker and his associates published another paper titled Naturalistic Quantification of Canine Olfactory Sensitivity, which appeared in the journal Applied Animal Behaviour Science. This study tested two dogs, a Rottweiler and a standard Schnauzer, for odour sensitivity, again to NAA. Discussing the results of this latter 2006 study on dogs, the researchers wrote, Our recent investigation of human odour detectability yielded thresholds approximately 10,000 to 100,000 fold higher than those we report here for the dog. So yes, the dogs had a threshold detection level much lower than that of the humans they had observed three years previously. But that figure is only correct in the context of those two studies, which compared the sensitivity of 12 people and two dogs to just one odour. And yet the myth that dog's sense of smell is generally so much better than ours has continued to spread. But here's where it gets interesting. More recently, Matthias Lasker, a zoologist at Sweden's Lingshurping University, has been publishing his own research that is overturning this caricature of human versus canine olfactory powers. Lasker has authored a number of studies comparing the odour sensitivities of humans to those of other animals, including dogs, mice and spider monkeys. His work has shown that, in some instances, humans can even outperform dogs in the smell arena. For example, dogs have a lower detectable threshold level for carbolic acids, which are found in the body odours of animals likely to be hunted by canines. But humans actually outperformed dogs when it came to five components found in fruit or flower odours. While it would be unwise to fall into the trap of extrapolating generalizations from limited data, these results might suggest that, rather than dogs having a superior sense of smell to humans generally, each species may have adapted to have greater sensitivity to odours specific to its own evolutionary circumstances. As ever, more research needs to be done, but Lasker's findings well and truly bust the myth that dogs are brandishing a sense of smell that's squillions of times better than ours across the board. And as for how all this relates to the delicate art of pea cartography, well, it's even more reason for Yoshi to continue mapping the odours that he's evolved to enjoy while I sit back and smell the roses. That story was written and produced by Reese McGowan. Now it's time to navigate this podcast towards a story about the brain. I spoke with Dr. Steve Cassim, a postdoc research fellow at Neuroscience Research Australia, about consciousness and how brain mapping techniques are helping neuroscientists unlock the mysteries of the brain. I started by asking him why it's important to have maps of the brain.
just as explorers had maps defining the coastlines for their exploration, neuroscientists need atlases of the brain to explore the mind. We need to know what regions are what, where they are, how they formed. And so by using ontology, which is the logical procession of ideas, if we apply that to an atlas as well, we can logically understand how this region goes into this region, how this region moves into this region, and so on and so forth. Not just on an evolutionary sense, by comparing it, you know, with rats, primates, humans, birds, etc., but also within species, you can look at how it's arranged. Why is it arranged like this? Why is the hippocampus near the amygdala? Why is it so on and so forth? And so it, that's a very literal sense of defining the coastlines of the mind by the literal regions that exist. But it also helps us understand what those regions are used for by logical explanation, but also by following it up with study. So in a way, Atlas work has always been and always will be the basis for almost all neurological studies. Research has shown that it's possible for people in comas to have thoughts. Can you expand on that research? What they've shown only very recently and serendipitously is that people who are in a coma or in a compassion and other things like that where they're not conscious per se are still able to have thought. And so what, what, the, what they've done in a study is they've connected an fMRI, so a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, to someone in a coma and then they've asked them questions and they said to answer yes, think heavily about your right hand swing in tennis. And if you want to say no, think heavily about your left hand swing. Now, they asked this in particular because this person was an avid tennis player and they've developed quite a strong muscle memory and mental pattern of right hand swing and left hand swing. Well, if a conscious person thinks about that, which they tested beforehand, a slightly different part of the brain lights up based on the right hand or left hand, but distinct enough so they could distinguish between the two. So when they asked this person the same questions and told him to think heavily about right hand or left hand, and then they started asking him questions, and they were quite surprised that the person could hear and comprehend what was going on, but they were just not conscious. So in that sense, there is definitely a grey area as to what the person's brain is doing when they're unconscious. Is there a difference between the dead brain and the unconscious brain? I would say there clearly is. And a good example is if we reference Nissel. Who, who was one of the first neuroanatomists and neurohistologists back in 1896, he says, and I paraphrase from his German, that all behavior and thought must be represented in the brain biologically by the neurons and the cells. And he said that because his dear friend Aloysius Alzheimer, who he worked with in patients of dementia, looked at Alzheimer's brains and he saw that people with Alzheimer's were missing large portions of their brain and hence large portions of their mind. And so in similar fashion, a person who's brain dead or is dead can't possibly have any consciousness left in them. But um, stress, which is something I do a bit more closely, and we use stress as a an animal model to represent depression sometimes, is that we see there's a massive loss in dendrites, but no actual loss in cells. And so it's deceptive in that if there's no loss in cells, you would think there's no loss in gray matter volume. But because the dendrites still occupy 33% of the volume of the brain, if you, if you lost two-thirds of all your dendrites, which is what's standard for a person who suffers chronic stress, then you would be expected to lose 22% of your gray matter volume, and we see that. Now, 22% won't make a big golf ball size.
sized hole like an, a person with dementia does, but it will see you know, a 22% reduction like a deflated balloon. Is it possible to regenerate neurons that are affected by chronic stress? Well, unfortunately, no. And so this is one of the things I point out as an urgency with stress research. And so the, one of the only parts of the brain that has neurogenesis, so the ability to grow neurons, is the hippocampus. So, and what stress does is it damages the hippocampus, which is okay, and it starts to recover in rodents between three to six weeks. That's the fair recovery once it's removed from a special environment. But other parts of the brain, such as the anterior cingulate cortex, which is, represents the prefrontal cortex in a human, doesn't recover. And it never will, because neurons don't regenerate the same way as the other cells do, and nor at that area. And so in a chronically stressed rodent, you'll see upwards of 30% decreases in the anterior cingulate cortex, represented by the prefrontal cortex. And that will never come back. And we've looked at them after eight weeks of recovery, and the damage is still the same. What does the future of brain mapping look like? Until we get a complete picture, which will uh, almost you know, rhetorically never be possible because there's an interesting analogy where we know more about the Big Bang than we do about the brain. If the brain was smaller, we wouldn't be smart enough to study it. And if it was any larger, it'd be too complex to study. So we're in this Goldilocks stone where we might be able to figure it out, but um, it, it might take another thousand years. I mean, if we know how the universe has been created already, but we don't understand how thought gets translated into memory or how something electrical and chemical can then translate into something you know metaphysical like thought and consciousness we're still a long way away Professor Marcia Langton is an anthropologist, geographer, academic, activist and author. In 1993, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for her work in anthropology and the advocacy of Aboriginal rights. Professor Langton's new book is called Welcome to Country, a travel guide to Indigenous Australia. It's both a practical guide to travel and tourism and an account of some of the customs, languages, art and history of Indigenous Australians. Rhys McGowan asked Professor Langton about songlines and important knowledge that comes from Australia's Indigenous cultures. But he began by asking about the concept for the book. It's what's called a curated book. So the publishers were very um, hands-on in guiding the book to completion. They gave me the opportunity to, uh, to find two Aboriginal students to work on the entries. I was able to write, I guess what most people would call a short essay. It's about 20, 25,000 words. It covers the main topics that people need to know about when they go into Indigenous Australia. So, you know, there are some cultural awareness tips, protocol tips, how to buy authentic Indigenous art, a section on prehistory, kinship, traditional ownership, customs. And I, I use, uh, you know, the kind of grandmotherly advice, uh, don't be nervous about talking to Indigenous people. So many people are made to feel nervous, as if they shouldn't say anything in case they make a mistake. I encourage people to overcome that fear and give them some tips on how to, you know, engage with in Indigenous guides or hosts when they go to any of the 
attractions that are uh, listed in the book. I also discuss some in my essay, such as the growing Aboriginal culinary sector with our wonderful chefs and caterers, uh, wild bush food producers. So, so many Australians are very interested in Indigenous culture but don't know where to um, engage or how to engage. So the book actually fills a huge gap in the marketplace and it's not just for Australians, it's also for overseas visitors who want to see something of Indigenous culture but I think unfortunately are told, well, there's nothing to see, we don't know of anything. But there is so much everywhere in Australia. I think it's also great for Indigenous people because there are so many families and Aboriginal corporations and native title groups, landholders, clans who are running their own businesses and they may not know about other Indigenous businesses. So it gives them the opportunity to find out about each other. And I make the point in the book that the tourism industry offers Aboriginal landowners an opportunity to live on their country and raise their children on their country and train their young people in Indigenous knowledge and share it with others, which is what so many Aboriginal people want to do. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about songlines, what they are and what role they play in the lives of Indigenous Australians. So there are ancestral tracks and um, they're represented in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander religious narratives or sacred narratives through song, through ceremonies and through a vast inherited knowledge of places and these places are remembered as the locations of ancestral dramas and ancestral activities. And the songs are about those ancestral activities. So sometimes the ancestral beings are very clearly known persons in a genealogy. They are people who are what you might call historical figures in the Aboriginal world and others are supranatural or superhuman beings with the characteristics of, you know, magical animals. But I think uh, there's a complex code for talking about the past and the way the past is written into the landscape. And so songlines is an English word that a travel writer introduced into Australian English and um, earlier writers talked about dreaming tracks, anthropologists still talk about dreaming tracks, Aboriginal people might talk about pathways or where the ancestors went. So there's a number of ways of talking about these ideas. Not all places are on ancestral tracks, some places exist in their own right as very singular, special and significant places but nevertheless, places where ancestral dramas played out. Some of the dramas are geological or have to do with climate change. But, you know, the people, the characters in the dramas are what's so interesting in the Aboriginal world. They're named characters with great influence in our lives. And um, these traditions inform just common ceremonies like welcome to country because you want your visitors to feel that they're safe in this big, volatile spiritual world and, and to feel that being with a family line that has connections to those ancestral beings will protect you against their great powers so that you're not a stranger but uh, welcomed into the country. And 
introduced to ways of observing good practice, good protocol in a particular Indigenous group's country. I was wondering like, what you would say are some of the traditions and practices that remain with Indigenous Australians in the present day and what you think the broader population might learn from that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, respect for our environment and our fellow beings, be they uh, fauna or flora. You know, Aboriginal people have a great knowledge of, uh, say, vegetation communities, which have their own behavioural characteristics, uh, the impact of fire, the behavioural characteristics of particular faunal communities. There's so much Indigenous knowledge and increasingly I've found over the last 30 years that scientists are learning from Aboriginal people about, say, fire management or particular animals and birds, vegetation communities. Uh, and whereas, you know, scientists have declared some species extinct, Aboriginal rangers will find small communities of these animals and alert the scientists. So that's happened a few times. And many scientists, not all, but many scientists, particularly in the biological sciences, are thinking, well, you know, we better ask the traditional owners about this. And there's some great collaborative work in the area of environmental science that involves scientists and uh, Aboriginal people with a great knowledge of their country. And have you got a favourite place to travel to? I do have my special places that I go to more often than others. And of course, it's dictated by where I live now. I live in Melbourne, so I love the Grampians and I've included the Grampians in the, in the book. But I lived, I lived for many years in North Australia, both in um, North Queensland and the Northern Territory. I've worked a lot in the Kimberley. I love the Great Barrier Reef. And, uh, you know, I think all Australians should be concerned about its future and should know about it and learn about it. I go to the Garma Festival every year. And there are so many events that I'd like to go to more often, such as the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, the Darwin Indigenous Art Fair, and the Telstra Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards held in August every year. The Cairns Indigenous Art Fair is in July. I've been a few times to those events. I'd love to go every year, but you know, I also have to work. <laughs> and the Kimberley is just amazing. I, I advise you to go. It's extraordinary. In our next story, producer Sarah Matthews examines CRISPR technology and learns about the risks involved when people map their own DNA in order to hack the code for seemingly more advantageous traits. This is the first time in human history, right, that we are no longer slaves to our genomes. The genes that you were born with you don't have to keep through your entire life. Now, whether you agree or disagree or whatever you want to say, right? The fact that that possibility exists is there. That's Josiah Zayner, a biohacker and scientist. He's speaking at a conference in San Francisco about new developments in human genetic engineering. Around 20 minutes into the lecture, Zayner decides to put his money where his mouth is 
and pulls out a syringe and injects himself with something that will change his DNA forever. He does this in front of a crowded room and countless people watching the live stream. Zayna has described himself as a scientist and social activist, and he's created a DIY genetic engineering kit that can be purchased online through his company, The Odin. But should Zayna be allowed to do that to himself or encourage others to do the same? Ten years ago, a stunt like that would never have been possible. So how was Zayna even able to change his DNA on stage? Well, it comes down to something called CRISPR. CRISPR is kind of like a sat-nav guided pair of scissors that works on DNA. So it's this amazing, uh, amazing construction that we found from the bacterial world, um, which allows us to go in and cut and paste DNA, not unlike you would cut and paste um, letters in a Word document. So it's really um, a technology for gene editing. That's Dr. Hannah Brown a research fellow at the University of Adelaide. She uses CRISPR technology in her research, which looks at the role of specific parts of DNA in embryos. However, she says there's a range of ethical issues and potential dangers that come with having the ability to edit your own genes. We're actually a long way from knowing whether whether this technology is safe and being able to get to the point where we feel comfortable that the technology is safe before we do it is a real challenge because that would mean that we would have to create a human or create an embryo that will go on to become a baby um, that despite us thinking that, you know, having having done all the right experiments, that actually to, to prove that it's, it's once and for all safe, we would actually have to create a baby from an embryo that we'd edited. And, you know, that means that we have to create a baby where we we are unsure of what the consequences might be. There have been a number of fictional pieces that warn us of the potential dangers of human genetic modification. The X-Men series, which tells a story of a group of mutants born with superhuman abilities, is one of the most famous examples. The mutants fight against bigotry from so-called normal people who hate and fear them because of their differences. Michelle Watson researches public opinion on genetic modification and says that the general public share these concerns and are worried about what the introduction of gene editing technology would mean for society. Eric, you said yourself, we're the better men. This is the time to prove it. Never again. A lot of people are scared about whether this will form an inequality, whether only people with money can access it, whether people are going to start enhancing their children and enhancing themselves so much that it will cause also not only a money inequality, but also a um, uh, give access to people, like a Gattaca situation, so to speak. So more people will, um, there'll be a higher class divide as well, a bigger class divide. And then there's the issue of biohackers. Michelle says that biohackers like Josiah Zayna are more of a hindrance than a help to the research into gene editing technology because they make it seem a lot safer than it really is. I, I don't think, coming from a genetics background, I don't think we should have, we don't know all of the risks yet. And there's a, a lot of people also worry that they don't have access to the technology yet. 
but it's all in clinical trials and we do that for a reason. We don't know the risks yet and we don't know entirely what the long-term effects are. And then you get people who are biohackers who are injecting in front of lecture theatres and getting all of this publicity and making the public frustrated, which is fair enough because they think, well, why can't we do this now? But it was a massive risk for those biohackers to do that. And it was such a localised um, result that they had that it was probably quite harmless and it wouldn't have done anything to him. It wouldn't have made him increase in muscle strength. He just proved that he had changed his DNA. She also says biohackers can potentially take advantage of vulnerable people with serious illnesses who are frustrated with a lack of access to gene editing, which they see as something that could really help them. She's especially concerned about Desire Zayner selling DIY gene editing kits online and literally profiting from their vulnerability. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, that's, that's scary to me. That, that really, that kind of puts that hype into this arena, which at the moment there's so many other, you've got the ethical problems, you've got the mo- um, a lot of people are thinking this is immoral technology, and then you've got the people who are desperate and want to try everything, and you get biohackers coming in and going, hey, look, this is great, you know, and giving them almost false hope and false security that this is a safe technology to use at the moment. So where to from here? Michelle thinks one of the most important things governments should be doing is creating an open dialogue between scientists and the public about what this technology is, how it can be used, and to answer some questions or concerns that people have. A lot of this technology and a lot of medical science, any science, as long as we can properly communicate it, and that's not scientists talking to the public, that's opening up a dialogue and allowing the public to voice their concerns and allowing the government and the scientists to listen, respond and having that open communication between the two, talking down to someone and saying this is how it is, this is what we do, never works in these kind of controversial situations. So we really need to, these kind of surveys are now hopefully bringing about this dialogue between between the public and uh, governments to actually talk about what we should be focusing on, what we should be regulating um, and what they want for the future. That was Sarah Matthews speaking with Michelle Watson and Dr Hannah Brown about biohacking. Andrew Katsis never expected that a lone tweet would send him on a 13,000 kilometre journey to meet science communicator Bill Nye. Here's Andrew to tell us how this incredible journey began and what happened when he finally got there. It's not every morning that an overworked PhD student wakes up in a fancy hotel in Los Angeles, California, ahead of his television debut. Although still slightly jet-lagged from my 14-hour flight, I stumbled out of bed and tried to make myself look respectable enough for a media appearance. No mean feat if you've seen how I usually dress. I showered, shaved very carefully, and ironed my clothes, including a brand new blue business shirt I had bought precisely for the occasion. At 10.30am, my snappily dressed chauffeur, Stanley, collected me from the hotel. I sat in the back seat, enjoying free mints, and chatted to Stanley about his life-changing 1981 encounter with Muhammad Ali. I felt like a king. 
Our car passed through security at Sony Pictures Studios. Almost immediately, a producer took one look at the patterns on my shirt and declared, No, you can't wear that. She steered me towards the wardrobe department, where I was presented with more appropriate attire. Another blue shirt that felt a bit tight-fitting, but I wasn't willing to put up a fight about it. Then, into the studio, sauntered the man I had travelled across the world to meet. Science communicator Bill Nye, host of the Netflix program Bill Nye Saves the World. My Bill Nye adventure had begun, as do many adventures, with a hashtag. A few months earlier, when I was relatively new to Twitter, and not quite sure what to do with it, scientists across the world began tweeting their research topics at Bill Nye, accompanied by the hashtag BillMeetScienceTwitter. Keen to get in on this action, I tweeted my own contribution. Hi Bill Nye, I am studying how and why zebra finches talk to their unhatched chicks to alter their development. Hashtag BillMeetScienceTwitter. Overnight, my tweet got 50 likes and nearly a dozen retweets, which seemed to me a respectable outcome. What I didn't expect was to receive a mysterious email one month later from the creators of Bill Nye Saves the World. We'd like to have you on the show, a producer said to me when I called her up. You mean on a satellite link, I asked? No, we'd like to fly you to our studio in Los Angeles. I considered this for a few seconds. You do know that I'm in Australia, don't you? The producer laughed. <laughs> yeah, I can tell that. One month later, I shuffled onto the Bill Nye Saves the World stage. I was allowed only a single rehearsal, to keep it fresh, in Bill's words, during which I stumbled nervously over my answers. Involuntarily, I flashed back to all the times in my life I had said something stupid in front of an audience. There was no shortage of incidents. Perhaps the most memorable was my third live appearance on The Science Hour, a community radio show in Melbourne, when words tangled in my throat and I responded to the host's friendly welcome with thanks. It's great to be black. Despite my shaky practice run, Bill was completely friendly and welcoming throughout. He seemed thrilled with my research topic, and thanked me for coming all the way from Australia. After our rehearsal, he glanced down at my feet, and gestured towards the wardrobe department. Get the ladies to shine your shoes, he said. You'll feel like a million bucks. My wardrobe was really taking a hit that day. All things considered, my appearance seemed to go well. I described my lab group's work on prenatal communication in zebra finches and what this type of research can tell us about learning in human fetuses. The 200-strong crowd oohed and aahed at all the right moments. And then, three minutes after it started, my illustrious Hollywood television career came to an end. It was hard to believe I had travelled across the world nearly 13,000 kilometres for such a fleeting contribution. A producer swooped in to ask if I had said anything scientifically inaccurate, but in all honesty, I could scarcely even remember what I had said.
Back in Australia, I returned to the post-fame drudgery of PhD work. I wasn't allowed to publicise my appearance until the show was released, so over the next nine months I told only a handful of family members and colleagues. One friend, a New Jerseyite who grew up with Bill Nye the Science Guy, was a particularly tough sell. I explained to him that a famous science communicator had discovered me on Twitter and had invited me onto his show. You might have heard of him, I said. His name is Bill Nye. My friend looked astonished. His eyes lit up and his mouth hung agape. But then he relaxed and laughed. (laughs) You almost had me for a moment, he said. I let the moment hang for a few beats and then I returned his smile. (laughs) You believe me for a second, though. And that's the end of our Maths-themed episode of Collateral. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure you follow us on Twitter at CollateralPod and tell all your friends about us. If you have any comments or ideas for the show or want to pitch us a story, we'd love to hear from you. Email podcast at lateralmag.com. See you next time.